The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am truly honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Janine Gutman. She is a veteran newspaper journalist whose career in reporting, editing, design, and management spans four decades. In 2018, she earned a Green Mountain College Master of Science degree, which focused on environmental, social, food, and economic sustainability. She currently writes a weekly opinion column for the Vermont Standard, which is based in Woodstock, Vermont. It was founded 165 years ago, which makes it the oldest weekly newspaper in Vermont. I happened to meet Miss Gutman while I was at Green Mountain College and found her work to be remarkable in that she brought such a long history of journalism to this program. For example, she spent 15 years as editor and vice president at the Portland Press Herald Maine Sunday Telegram based in Portland, Maine. She also worked on Capitol Hill, serving as top communications director with a focus on homeland security and congressional oversight. Welcome, Ms. Gutman. It's a real honor to have you here. Thank you, Melinda. It's, it's exciting to be here. appreciate it. Well, we're going to mostly talk about your research project at Green Mountain College, which has to do with the Vermont dairy industry and its dependence on labor that is considered to be Mexican mostly. We're going to talk about racism in the dairy industry in Vermont, and we're going to talk about immigration. But before we jump to your research project, let me first ask you, You've had four decades of work in journalism. What led you to that career in the first place? Well, I'm a military brat. My father was career Air Force. And I went to high school in Okinawa, Japan, during the Vietnam War. And all of our news and all of our information from the world came through the Stars and Stripes, or AFRTS which is Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. So as far as we knew, everybody in America was supporting the war effort, and there were just a few disgruntled folks, hippies, making a mess of things, but very small minority, nothing to worry about. You know, everyone's behind you. Keep up the good fight. Keep going. And then one Christmas, my grandmother, who lived in Cleveland, got us a uh, subscription to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, and it would come in the mail. And because we lived across the world and there was no internet and we couldn't even telephone people, it came late and sometimes it came not at all sporadically. But I started to read about what was really happening in this country, and it blew my mind. And it blew my mind on several levels, not the least of which was I realized how I had been fed years of propaganda, and that what was happening in America was not at all what was being represented through the Stars and Stripes. 
And I, I, I just realized the power of the press because I was actually a victim of propaganda. Mm-hmm. And I immediately understood how there's so much power in reporting and in getting people's stories out and in telling the truth and how that can change, literally, literally change the world. Mm-hmm. So that's how my interest in journalism began. Wow. And here we are today in a situation where, from my perspective, in my own community, our newspapers are shrinking in size. First, they shrunk in size. Reporters were let go. And then we seem to be consolidating. So the local family-owned newspaper has now been bought out by a corporate conglomerate. And then we're fed so much fake news, if you will, or we're we're told that the news isn't trustworthy anymore. And I don't know about you, but I don't really know how to help people decipher what they see in the news. How do we know who is telling the truth? What would you say to people being a journalist for so many years? How do you advise people to consume news? Mm -hmm. It's really a tragedy because uh, with the advent of the internet, what happened was the whole economic business model of newspapers collapsed. Subscribers and subscriptions never paid the freight of newspapers. It was always advertising, and most notably classified advertising. I mean, do you remember when you had to, you were looking for a place to rent, or you yes. were looking for a job, or whatever, and you would pick up a newspaper and you go to the classified section, and you would circle things. Exactly. Right. Well, that was the bread and butter of newspapers, and that brought in probably 50% of their advertising revenue, if not more. And then the rest would be from national advertising, places like Macy's, Nordstrom's, and then local advertising. And so when readers paid a quarter or 50 cents, that was nothing in terms of, well, it was something, but it was not enough to really ever carry the weight and cost of a newsroom and then all the other departments of a newspaper. So part of what happened with newspapers is that we taught our readers over time and over generations, hey, this product's only worth 25 cents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so now when newspapers are saying, can you please pay five bucks for this? Yeah. Or when I go and get the New York Times here in Vermont and it's like seven fifty on Sunday, that's probably a fair price, but we haven't taught our readers to value a newspaper that way. They're still thinking it's only worth a quarter. Mm-hmm. Or free. Or free, right. So that's one thing that happened. The other thing is that news became celebritized. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that's not even really a word, but you know, it became all about the celebrity mm-hmm. and the Kardashianization of news, if you will. And I think, you know, Donald Trump really represents that. People were so enamored of him. I mean, and I, when I say people, I mean news people, that they, most of them were convinced he wasn't going to get elected. He was just kind of good copy, good for sound bites and good on air, made outrageous comments and drew the audience. And the audience came and the ad revenue went up and all these Cable networks made millions of dollars on that, and they never really thought about, wow, what's our duty here as the fourth estate? Should we, should we really be doing this? What is the duty of the fourth estate? And in case people are not familiar with the term, 
the press is referred to as the fourth estate. What is the duty of the press? Well, traditionally, and how I see journalism, is the duty of the press, and the reason that it's privileged and unique in that it's protected specifically in the First Amendment, is to keep a watch on, a guard on, our democracy, to keep it accountable, to keep it transparent. And there's that famous quote by Thomas Jefferson, if I were to have a newspaper without a country or a country without a newspaper, I would not hesitate to choose the latter. Mm. Probably watching that, but he didn't always like the press either. But the founding fathers and people like Jefferson realized that the press was really necessary so that the government wouldn't get out of bounds. Exactly. It would always be held accountable to people, to the voters, to the citizens. And then it was the citizen's job to then take the press, read it, distill it, get different points of view, and make a determination. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back in the day, even before I went to journalism school in the 70s, there were hundreds, thousands more newspapers. And in the height of journalism, the 30s, the 40s, there would be seven or eight competing daily newspapers in one market. And some of them were overtly, you know, Republican, Democratic, pro-worker, pro-business. And their politics, their bias was there for everybody, everybody to see. But it's how they debated the ideas of the day. Mm-hmm. And then it was up to the individual citizen to decide, what's my view? Based on all the stuff I'm hearing, what's my view? Mm-hmm. So you had a decades-long career in journalism, and you decided at some point that you were going to get an advanced degree focusing on the broader category of food system sustainability. Your thesis project focused on Vermont's milk industry. Why did you choose sustainability as a focus? Well, personally, I there's a celiac runs in my family, and Early on, I became, or for like the past, I don't know how many years, I've been dealing with food issues and food labeling. And, you know, if you have any allergies or issues like that, it soon becomes very clear that the labels are are faulty. They're not accurate. Ingredients that are in food aren't always, you know, revealed. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of hidden stuff going on, or there's things called natural flavors. Mm -hmm. What, What is that? There are these terms where people can hide, manufacturers can hide all kinds of stuff. Yeah. So I wanted to write about that, and I realized pretty soon into the process that I didn't know anything about food, and I didn't know enough to write about it with authority like you're taught to in journalism, you know, to write and speak with authority. So I was attracted to the Green Mountain College program in sustainable food systems. And then my spouse is a Vermonter. And I have this saying about Vermonters are like salmon. They always go home. And so we moved here, and I got my master's degree. And then I kept hearing rumblings about undocumented workers in Vermont. And I was thinking, huh? Yeah, exactly. How can that be? I don't see these people. It's a predominantly very white state. Yeah. Yeah, and so... Uh, And I had worked in California, and my family lives in California, and a lot of the focus on this issue is along the southwest border. Exactly. But having moved to Vermont from the D.C. area, northern Virginia, I can tell you that there's, you know, there are a lot of Mexican nationals in that area, too. 
But these migrant farm workers move, go with the crops and they go as far as, you know, up into Maine. The issue with the dairy workers is they're not seasonal cause, because cows are not seasonal, dairy cows. They have to be milked twice a day, 365 days a year. So the regular agricultural visas do not meet the needs of farmers who hire migrant dairy workers. Right. So they often break the law, and the state of Vermont has ha- had actually taken a, a look-the-other-way official position. That was its position under the Shumlin administration. And the reason is, in Vermont, the largest part of our economy is agriculture. Mm-hmm. And the largest part of the agricultural economy is the dairy industry. And if you think about Vermont, you're going to probably think about the black and white Holstein cow, the Ben and Jerry's ice cream. You know, it is Vermont. I mean, it's the emblem, the brand of Vermont is dairy. Right. And to come and find that more than 50% of all the milk products produced in Vermont are at the hands of undocumented, largely undocumented migrant workers is shocking. But if it weren't for those workers, there would be no agricultural economy in the state of Vermont, and there might not be any economy. Interesting. Let me take one break, because I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Janine Gutman. She is a veteran newspaper journalist. Her career spans decades. She most recently earned a master's in at Green Mountain College, based in Pulteney, Vermont, Her research and her thesis focused on the unsustainability of Vermont's iconic milk industry and its hidden reliance on undocumented abused labor. I need to just go back and qualify something that you said. You said that they break the law. I'm assuming that you're referring to the dairies that hire the undocumented workers. Yes. Okay, because the way the press tells me or speaks to me or the narrative that the press describes to me is that the workers are breaking the law, but somebody has to have a vested interest in bringing them here. And to me, that's where the focus needs to be. Yes, and I I have to tell you, that was the most shocking finding in my graduate research, because you know, I also bought into the general journalistic narrative that, oh, our immigration system is broken, and oh my God, we need to fix it, and it's in disrepair, and it's all a mess. Well, guess what? It's working exactly as intended. Yeah. It's working to support this whole food system, and that's why our lettuce is so cheap, and our tomatoes are so cheap, and our milk is so cheap, and our cheese is so cheap. If we were actually to bring in fully documented, full-waged workers, or God forbid, have you know American-born people do it, the wages would be so high that our you would be paying seven dollars a head for our lettuce. Hmm. I don't even know what milk would cost. So the immigration system, on purpose turns a blind eye to let all these folks in. And 
you know, it began during the Bracero period, which I wrote about in my thesis, which was in World War II to replace the men and women working in the agricultural fields then in California. The United States made a deal with the Mexican government to bring in Mexican workers. And a lot of them stayed. And that Bracero program, I think it, it started in 1941. It was supposed to just be a World War II program, but it didn't end until 1964. And so American, I'm talking about California in particular, food owners out there, farm owners, became literally addicted to Mexican labor. Mexican folks work really hard. Their whole families would come with them and support them, and they would work day and night. They would live in little shacks. Uh, their kids would work in the fields. They would work on the weekends. I mean, it was incredible, and that was the basis of it. But if you even go farther back than that, the way we treated the Mexican farm workers and Mexicans in general really has roots back into the slavery period and how we treated African Americans. It was a neo-slavery program, really. Yeah. You know, I find this to be so fascinating from a dietitian's perspective. You know, somebody who sees food as medicine and who wants to protect public health first and foremost, one would think that we would value those people who grow, pick, harvest, produce our food, just as we value a physician who treats us when we're sick should we not be valuing the people who are doing the hard labor to put the preventive kinds of foods on our table to keep us well in the first place? That's just a really big disconnect for me. I know, and it's incredible that not only are they not valued, but they're they're literally invisible. And hated. And hated, right. And nobody knows. I mean, in Vermont, they, they hide on these dairy farms. And, and part of my original thesis was to go and interview folks. And I had worked on that with my advisors and with the head of the Master's Sustainable Food System Program, Robin Curry. And I was all set to do this ethnographic interviewing. And then came this huge clampdown through ICE. And the border of Vermont and Canada became really militarized. Mm. I mean, I went up there one summer and it, it frightened me, all the barbed wire and everything on this. It was crazy. And um, I suddenly started to realize that if I sought to interview these folks, my notes might get seized, somebody might be following me, they might, I might end up getting somebody deported. So I had to change the focus. And because I, I just did not want that ever to be on my conscience. I did not want that to, I did not want to harm somebody. Or, yeah. or potentially harm somebody's family by, you know, reporting this story, reporting these facts. Can you do it in a way where the workers are anonymous? Well, you can, but, you know, in I think it was in 2013, Vermont actually passed a law that allowed undocumented people, migrant people, to get a driver's license in Vermont just so they would have an identification. Okay, but then what happened is, and this was, revealed in the Vermont Digger article, is the DMV in Vermont was surreptitiously funneling this information to ICE because somebody got a bee in her bonnet that they didn't like these folks having driver ID cards. So the ICE people knew where they lived and were just, they would just track them down and they would deport them. 
has the dairy industry as a whole come to the defense of the migrant workers? Well, Ben and Jerry's was very much pushed by migrant justice, which was founded in Vermont after a young dairy worker was killed on a dairy farm. How was he killed? Um, He got caught in some sort of machine. I see. And his family was so fearful that they were afraid to attend his local funeral. Uh. I mean, they just stayed hidden on their farms. Mm. But... Migrant Justice launched a what was called a Milk with Dignity campaign. And after many years, Ben & Jerry's finally signed on to that. I mean, it's just an acknowledgement that, yes, these people are working on our dairy farms. And they're the reason that our dairy industry in Vermont remains not only afloat, but is, you know, vibrant, making money, expanding, hiring other people. It's a linchpin The dairy industry is a linchpin to the agricultural economy, which is a linchpin to the entire economy in Vermont. Right. And you've already been losing many dairy farmers. And this isn't just in Vermont, but we see dairy farmers decreasing in the Midwest, too. You report that Vermont dairy farmers have decreased from 1,075 dairy farms in 2012 to 868 dairy farms by 2014. I'm assuming that you're also seeing increased suicides among dairy farmers who can't make ends meet. I didn't really look at that aspect. Uh-huh. I can tell you that the average age of farmers in Vermont, probably like elsewhere, is really increasing. Right. I mean, you have people in their 50s. That's like the average age. 50 right. And 60. 59, I think. And that was several years ago. Right. I mean, it's a very hard... It's a very hard business, and, you know, with dairy cows, they have to be milked twice a day, so right, somebody has to do that work. Well, let me go back to something that you touched on, and it's a key takeaway point, actually, from your research, and that is that our food system is racialized. Racism must be addressed before true food system reforms are possible. That is a loaded takeaway point. As a journalist, you know, as, as someone who creates narratives for us, for our culture, where do we start to heal this system? I don't know, because, I mean, to prepare for this, I actually called up, as part of my graduation, I had to write a reflection paper to the college. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote these two paragraphs. Well, this is within this larger paper. But it says, from my capstone research and coursework in the program, I have learned that the American agricultural system could not exist in its present lucrative form if not for the decades of abuse of Mexican migrant farm workers. These invisible men, women, and children labor on farms small and large from California to Vermont and must live with the constant fear of detection detention, and deportation. I believe it is an oversight of the curriculum not to acknowledge and academically research the roles, impacts, and effects of this neo-slavery system of Mexican migrants who grow our vegetables, harvest our orchards, and package our foods. So I respectfully ask for consideration of this addition to the outstanding curriculum of the Sustainable Food System Program at Green Mountain College. That's excellent. That's the first step, isn't it? 
awareness. Yeah, I mean, because I studied the food, I studied food system for two and a half years, and I did not study this. Right. Nobody talks about this. Yeah. Not well, even not even colleges and universities talk about it. Well, it's I mean, e- at least this one didn't. I can't. I get. I cannot speak for all of them, but right. Well, it's easier not to, and when things are invisible, it's easy for us not to look under or pull back the curtain, but your research actually does that. And I think for many of our listeners, oftentimes the subjects that I bring to the airwaves are outrageous and they create a desire to become more active to prevent any fellow human being from suffering or being exploited. And that's why I I want to know what I can do as a next step to to help correct this problem. Well, one thing is to not fall into these traps that are being set at the national political level that seek to paint with a, with a broad brush an entire race of people. Right. You know, that all Mexicans are thugs or rapists. or And in fact, the Mexican people and the economies, the economies of Mexico and America, United States, due to NAFTA, are largely codependent at this point. And that was by design, too, and that was under Bill Clinton. Exactly. And when NAFTA was passed, a part of NAFTA going into effect was that Mexico, for the first time, would import tons, tons of subsidized American corn. And that destroyed thousands, hundreds of thousands of peasant farmers in Mexico who suddenly they could not compete with cheap U.S. subsidized corn. Their little farms went bankrupt. And where did they go to find a job? They went north. (laughs) You know, if there was any driver of illegal immigration into America, it started in a big way with NAFTA in the current era. Mm -hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left. I knew our time would fly. I want to leave that up to you to leave our listeners with a charge and tell us how we can learn more about this. Is there a website that you would like to direct our listeners for more information? Yes, Migrant Justice of Vermont has a great website. I think it's just Migrant Justice. Yeah, and they're they're working with the Vermont legislature to get things done. I think people right now, I would contact your state and uh, local lawmakers. I wouldn't even bother with the federal government right now. A a lot of these laws and changes are going to have to come at a grassroots level, and they're going to have to be driven by consumers. And consumers should always remember the power of their grocery dollars. You know, we have a lot of power. Where we spend our money, what we choose to buy, that can change a whole culture and a whole nation's economy. That's powerful. Everybody has that, you know, that kind of clout when they go and buy groceries. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we will have to end. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Janine Gutman, veteran newspaper journalist and author of terrific research that looks at the atrocities in the dairy industry. The title of her research paper is Empty Cartons, 
broken dairies, the unsustainability of Vermont's iconic milk industry, and its hidden reliance on undocumented abused labor. Thank you so much for being my guest. Thank you, Melinda. That was really great. Thanks a lot.